A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored by a Talmud. This episode about Rav Gustman, Rabbi Strozev Gustman, has been sponsored generously sponsored by a Talmud of a Talmud of Rav Gustman, and it's a schus for the Rafua Shalema of Shendel Sima Bas Gitza. So I'll start off, um, you know, when I give a walking tours in Yerushalayim to different neighborhoods, I do either virtual or, you know, those days real, maybe one day again, and now virtual. So if we do a Rechavia tour, one of the places that I stop is um, the Chavatzelet uh, the house in the corner of Ibn Ezra, Rechov Ibn Ezra and Ramban, a major corner in Rechavia. There was a a fellow in the old Yeshiva Yerushalayim in the early, you know mid eighteen hundreds named Yisrael Beck. He was a, a chassid of the Rishoner, the Beck family. His son was Nissan Beck, and he had a son-in-law named Yisrael Dov Frumkin, and he had together with his father-in-law a a newspaper, one of the first newspaper Hebrew newspapers, if not the first, um, called Chavatzelas. And in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, it was a prominent uh, newspaper for a long time. And, and this Yisrael Dov Frumkin had a son who took a different path than his father. His name was God Frumkin. And he, um, he studied law in, 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 uh, in Turkey, uh, like a lot of Jews in the Yishuv, not a lot of, a group of Jews in the Yishuv did, including Ben-Gurion. By the way, uh, that's a whole story. It's like Ben Svi. Uh, either way, um, uh, and um, he became a prominent lawyer in the Mandate period. In the 1920s, he built this uh, house in Rechavia, this God Frumkin. It was a big center, lots of meetings, the British, you know, the High Commissioner and many others. He was a very prominent lawyer, and then he became a judge, a, a justice in the British courts in the Mandate, in Mandatory Palestine, in Yerushalayim. He was one of the most prominent Jews in Yerushalayim in that capacity, um, and an experienced judge. So why is all that important? Is because that building, where it had such a you know prominent members living there, and 
and a big history that was sold to Rav Gustman when he moved to Israel, and that's where Rav Gustman opened his Netzach Yisrael Ramilus Vilna Yeshiva and took over the building, and that's where it is till till this very day. The Netzach Yisrael Ramilus uh, um, Yeshiva Kail, whatever is there still today, that was bought by Rav Gustman. So that's that's a, a history and how you know the transformation from a house like that into Rav Gustman's Yeshiva. In fact. When we do the Harazesim tours, we uh, end up going to Rav Gustman usually as well. He's buried in Harazesim in a prominent area. He's actually right next to, interestingly enough, the Panavizhar Rav's mother, Rav Shlomi Kahaneman's mother, moved to his, you know, Israel in her later years and lived in Tel Aviv, where the Panavizhar Rav's brother lived. Whole story. So Rav Gustman's buried right next to there. Chaim Kamil's in the neighborhood. It's a nice area. The great view also. So in Rav Gustman, that's the end, the end, the end of the story. We go back to the beginning. So Rav Gustman was born near Bialystok. His father was a businessman, and he came as a twelve-year-old to the Grudna Yeshiva. To the you know, it was a relatively new yeshiva, and it was right after World War One. And uh, Rav Gustman arrives there, becomes a very close student of Rav Shimon Shkup. The custom in the Grudny Yeshiva during that time was that older students would study with the younger Talmidim in the Yeshiva. And, and Rav, Rav Gustman was assigned to Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, who was one of the older and one of the top students at the Grudny Yeshiva at the time. So he learned with the young Rav Gustman. And interestingly enough, when Rav Gustman in turn became the older, uh, a, a, a Talmud in the yeshiva, and he was assigned to tutor younger students in the yeshiva. The, one of the ones who he learned with was Rav Shmuel Razovsky, later the Rosh Yeshiva and the Panovich Yeshiva, who he guided in, in his learning. And Rav Shmuel Razovsky always attributed uh, that to Rav Gusman, interestingly enough. And uh, one of the other ones who he, who he tutored at the request of this student's father was a young man named Naftali Wasserman, whose father, Abelchanan Wasserman, specifically asked Rav Gusman to tutor his son when he was in Grudna. The reason Rav Elchanan wanted his son to study in Grudna altogether was because Rav Elchanan fondly recalled being a Talmud of Rav Shimon Shkup in Tells when he was a young uh, student. And he wanted his son to have the opportunity to learn by Rav Shimon Shkup, who is now in Grudna, and he wanted Rav Gusman to be his... Uh, his tutor. Either way, when um, when uh, Rav Gusman was twenty one, twenty two, he he got engaged to the daughter of one of the leading rabbis in Vilna, a fellow by the name of Meir Basin. Meir Basin was a huge, famous Pesach and a huge uh, rabbi and Talmud Chacham. He had studied at the Velazhin Yeshiva um, in his youth, and he was one of the leading rabbis of Vilna. He was the Rav of the suburb of Vilna. Today it's in the city, but in those days it was a suburb called Schnippeshock. And in fact, the old Jewish cemetery of Vilna was located in Schnippeshock, um, where the Vilna Gain originally was buried and all the great uh, tzaddikim of, who had lived in Vilna for hundreds of years. A huge, massive cemetery was the Schnippeshock Cemetery. In the 1950s, the Soviets destroyed the cemetery completely, and the Jewish community in Vilna living in 
in in Stalinist uh, Soviet uh, controlled uh, Vilna, they you know at great risk to their life and safety, they they uh, rescued the Vilna guides. Uh, uh, Kever and they reburied him in the new Jewish cemetery in Vilna but everyone else who was buried there was destroyed and uh, there's just a monument there today either way so that's that's Schnippeshuk that's that's where Mayor Basin was the rabbi and um, and that he was the leading there were three main primary rabbis in charge of the Vilna Bezdin which is one of the pr- most prominent Bezdins in the world at the time of course Reb Chaim Grigensky was the main you know, basically the head of the Bezdin, and then Reb Chanachinich Aigish, the Marcheshes, was on the Bezdin, and Rameir Basin. And there's you know, other Dayanim as well, other rabbis as well. And but he was Rameir Basin was up there, and he he get, Rav Gusman gets engaged to uh, Rameir Basin's daughter, and unfortunately Rameir Basin passed away in between the engagement and the marriage, and Rav Gusman uh, inherited upon his marriage this young twenty-two-year-old. Newly married, he inherits three positions from his father-in-law, the rabbi of the community of Shnipishuk, to be a dayan on the bezdin of Reb Chaim Eizer at Vilna, and eventually, a couple of years later, um, to become a rebbe in the Ramailis Vilna Yeshiva, which all the dayanim and rabbis of Vilna, a lot of them were affiliated with, you know, primarily because of Reb Chaim Eizer, um, and and this, you know a lot to carry on young shoulders, and in that capacity, he became very close with Reb Chaim Grigensky, like took him under his wing. Um, and he is a famous story that you, know, you don't need Jewish history so much for that. It was a, quite a famous incident that uh, that Rav Gusman later said in life that he honor meant nothing to him because he received the ultimate honor, um, and early on. In his youth, and so nothing that he that that could ever compare to that. He was once at a meeting. He attended a meeting where the rabbanim of Vilna were that the Chavetz Chaim also was attending. And when he came in, Reb Chaim Eizer stood up for him. And uh, when Reb Chaim Eizer stood up, so the Chavetz Chaim also stood up. So then everyone else stood up for this young man in his twenties as well. So he said he received the ultimate honor that he felt that he didn't even deserve. And uh, therefore, honor meant nothing to him after that. Um, so, Reb Chaim Eizer taught him what it means to be a rabbi, what it means to paskin halachic questions. Reb Chaim Eizer said that told him, guided him, and said that he has to paskin with confidence on everything. He has to feel comfortable even with the most complicated questions. He should never, uh, you know, say this. This is not something I can paskin on. He has to tackle everything and be able to handle everything. That's a genuine. Uh, he said, otherwise, this is an amazing thing Reb Chaim told him, he said, if you don't feel comfortable paskining on every single Shiloh that comes your way, then you cannot take a salary from the Vilna uh, community uh, and, and be on the Bezdin. It would be, it's, that, that, that's not a rabbi. A rabbi has to be able to paskin on everything conceivable. That was Reb Chaim guidance. Reb Chaim would refer questions to him, and because of that, he corresponded with the leading rabbis of the day who would send questions to Reb Chaim Eizer, like the Ger Rebbe, Rebbe Nachem Zemba, um, both of Warsaw, you know, the Warsaw area, and uh, other great uh, rabbis uh, from all over the world. Um, so Reb Chaim Eizer would involve Rav Gustman in, in answering those questions. Um, and the, one of the things that Rav Gustman later on in life would do would be to relate the greatness and the wisdom 
of Reb Chaim Weiser. Later on in life, he would talk about just how, you know, just to be in the presence of such a man left such an impression on him. Um, Reb Chaim Weiser taught Rav Gusman that he said, when someone comes to you with a question, he says, first you have to paskin the mensch. He said, first you have to analyze the person standing in front of you, who he is and what his background is and what's he coming to you for. And then you have to pask in the question. It goes into those two steps. That's very important as well. That's that's what Rabbi Gustav related also. Um, he was a Rebbe, like I said, in the Ramaylis Yeshiva, together with one of the main uh, Rebbeim in the Yeshiva was Rabbi Sro Lovavitz, the oldest son of Rabbi Rucham Lovavitz, who was married to a Kasovsky, a prominent villain in the family, who was related to Rabbi Chaim Meiser, his father. His, his father-in-law was was Reb Chaim Weiser's brother-in-law, and he had he later became the uh, chief rabbi of, of of Johannesburg or something in South Africa. Um, but Rabbi, this this uh, this sort of Kasovsky, his first name slipped my mind. But Rabbi Sral Lovavitz was a rabbi in the Ramayla Yeshiva as well. He and his entire family um, were killed by the Nazis. But Rav Gusman, when he arrives in Vilna in 1930-31, he studied for a time with Rav Meir Karelitz, the older brother of the Chazanish. Supposedly, he even knew and even studied with the Chazanish himself, who was still living in Vilna at the time. I, did the, so I read, I have to double-check that, but it's, so it seems. And uh, also with Rav Shleim Haiman, who was the Rosh Hashiva in Ramaylis, uh, the Yeshiva at the time. Um Rao's yeshiva is an interesting yeshiva. It's a story in itself. Perhaps we'll get to that one day as well. An old yeshiva, an interesting yeshiva. But um, Rav Gusman is there um, in in the in Vilna when the war breaks out. Um, tries to get a visa, does get a visa, wasn't able to get out at the end of the day, and he's stuck in when the Vilna ghetto is established. In one of the articles I read by someone who was writing. This article about uh, Rav Gusman. So he writes, he refers there to the six-year Nazi occupation of Vilna. And I was like, wow, that's an amazingly long occupation, especially since it was only three years, the Nazi occupation of Vilna. I know, I know that a lot of, you know, you know, and I fully respect that there are those out there who like to censor, uh, you know, facts and stories for catered to a religious audience for educational purposes, that's fine. But just to do basic research to find out that that the Nazi occupation of Vilna was three years and not six years, I don't know, there's not a reason for censorship and that just seems to be a, you know, sloppy research. So, you know, just to be aware of that, that happens sometimes. Um, so Rav Gustman... Uh, all of his siblings and their families were killed, wiped out. Uh, he, he's the only survivor. Um, he was one of the last rabbis in the Vilna ghetto. The head of the Judenrat in the, in the Vilna ghetto is a very, very controversial figure, problematic figure. First he was the chief of police, later head on. The Nazis appointed him, upgraded him to the head of the Judenrat, a fellow by the name of Yaakov Genz. Um, very complicated story. And there was a, the question of, like there was in many ghettos, of handing over Jews to the Nazis for depra- deportation to Ponar, to the forest, where they were shot um, in order to save others, which Genz wanted to do to be able to, to rescue others. In Rav Gustman and uh, other, other surviving rabbis in the ghetto, they took the initiative to inform Genz that this is forbidden and you can't hand over Jews to the Nazis. And Genz 
you know, didn't, you know, ignored the rabbi's uh, uh, advice and he did it anyway. Um, at a later time, Gens asked the rabbis to get a halachic sanction to continue doing that at later deportations. And Rav Gustman and the others refused to give it to him. So again, you have this uh, interesting situation of a guy like Gens, who is a completely secular assimilated Jew. In fact, he was married to a Lithuanian, and this complicates his story even more. He was married to a non-Jewish Lithuanian, and, and because of that, he didn't even have to be in the ghetto. He could have hidden outside of the ghetto with his wife and her family, and he chose to, you know, to be with, to share the fate of the Jews and to be in the ghetto, and he rises to this position of power, and then he does it in a certain way, in a, in a, you know, in what many consider to be an abuse of that power. So he's a controversial figure. It's a, the whole story, and again, the story of the Judenrats, and it's it's not, you know, a lot of people see it as black and white, and one way or the other, it's not that simple. There's a lot of nuance, a lot of gray area, which is a topic we have to explore one day about the Judenrats and their position and, you know, cooperation versus collaboration and those type of uh, subjects. Either way, but the point of this story was the what Rav Gustman said to him and the initiative that he and the other surviving rabbis of the Vilna took in uh, in that uh, regard. Uh, Rav Gustman later escapes from the ghetto before right around the liquidation. He um, he uh, he joined eventually joins the partisans. He he uh, at this point is is this his wife and his daughter who he escaped with. He had a son as well, mayor named after his father-in-law. And his son was shot. His six-year-old son was shot in front of his eyes, and he and it, terrible, probably the worst tragedy possible. His son, his son is shot, and Rabbi Gusman would relate this over to teach what the horror of the Holocaust was. He said the curse that it says in the Teichecha, "Va'achaltem b'sar b'neichem," you'll eat the flesh of your children. He said, "I had that happen to me." As Rabbi Gusman said. Because when my son was killed in front of my eyes, my reaction to him getting killed was that I took his shoes off and I went and sold them. I bartered it for several slices of bread so that we shouldn't starve. And I brought, bring it back to my wife and daughter without telling them where I got it from. And they are able to eat and live another day. But I couldn't bring myself to eat that bread because I knew where it came from. And I knew that the curse of the Teichacha had actually happened with me. Um, a terrible, terrible tragedy. Later on, when he lived in Rechavia, he um, it was one of his one of his one of his uh, neighbors in Rechavia who came very close with him. He used to attend his shiurim. He's still still a member of Rechavia today. Professor Robert Alman, a Nobel laureate in economics, um, or the Nobel equivalency. Economics is not officially Nobel Prize, whatever it is. Either way, so he won it. And uh, he was very close with Rav Gustman. And unfortunately, Professor Alman experienced the tragedy of having his son get killed uh, fighting in the Israeli army. And uh, again, a terrible tragedy. And Rav Gustman came to be Menachem Avel. He came to comfort him. And he says to him, I want to sit down near you and I want to tell you something. He said, Rav Gustman says to him, I never got to sit Shiva for my son. I never got to give a proper Jewish burial for my son. So I want to sit here with you. You at least got to bury your son. You're getting to sit Shiva for your son. Your son got to choose how he was going to die. He chose to fight to save other Jews. 
That's how he died. My son didn't get to choose, and he wasn't killed saving anyone else. And Professor Alman said, Rabbi, you have comforted me more than anyone else during this entire shiva. Um, Rav Gusman during the war was was beaten, he had to hide, he risked his life at one several times to bring food to Reb Chaim Eiser's widow, who was eventually killed in the Vilna Ghetto as well. Reb Gusman was in a labor battalion for a part of time, he said, later said that he said Vidui over a hundred times, a short version of Vidui over a hundred times because he thought death was imminent. He helped discourage others from committing suicide in the Vilna Ghetto. A horrible situation. He said later that he did not, wasn't able to study Torah for years. And afterwards he tried to study and make up for lost time and he davened, beseeching God to help him remember all the Torah that he, that he had not been able to study all the years. Now he leaves the ghetto in the fall of 1932, 19, excuse me, 19, fall of 1943, around the time of the, um, of the liquidation, which a lot of people left then. And he went to the forest. He, he was hiding for several months. He described him, himself, he and his wife and his daughter, hiding in a place for six months where he couldn't stand up straight. In other words, for six months he wasn't able to even stand up uh, completely. S- uh, starved. He at one point killed a German um, in a confrontation in the forest. He later said that he had the mitzvah of killing Amalek. And after months of hiding, he joins a Jewish partisan unit operating in the forest. He became a fighter in the great Dayan of Vilna, becomes a fighter in, in his partisan unit. And he poskins that the uh, the that the, uh, the partisans are able to eat non-kosher meat, uh, but he himself would never eat it. And he even was able to keep his tefillin with him in the forest with the partisans, and he put it on every day. He would encourage the other Jewish partisans to do so as well. He would tie his tefillin around his boots, and that's how he kept them through the forest. Um, and uh, later on in life, he'd also described how he saw in the Vilna Ghetto uh, other dayanim, other rabbis from, from the Vilna Ghetto, including the Marcheshes, including Heinrich Eigish, being tortured uh, and being killed by the Nazis. He was the only Vilna rabbi who survived. He even met a family member of one of the Vilna rabbis later on in life, who asked him to describe how her grandfather or whatever was killed. And he said, I, I, I don't know. I don't, he, he put brushed her off. I don't remember. I didn't know. I didn't see. And later on, he told those close to him, he said, there's no way I could relate to this family member what I saw. It would just be too disturbing to, to, to hear how the Nazis tortured uh, rabbis specifically. He survived it all somehow. Um, his daughter, like I said, his wife and daughter survived as well. His, eventually his son-in-law was Remichel Berniker, who took over Netzach Ramilis uh, when Rav Gusman passed away. Rav Michal Berniker just passed away recently, a couple of years ago. Um, the Red Army liberates uh, Vilna in July of 1944, early July, July 13th, if I'm not mistaken. And um, his Jewish partisan unit marches in with the Red Army. And um, he stays in Vilna in the post-war to rebuild Jewish life, a shul, a mikveh, assisting survivors. He was basically the only rabbi who survived Vilna. And like all post-war rabbis, this included assisting Aguna questions. Uh, interestingly enough, in Soim Gedalia, uh, uh, right after Rosh Hashanah, 1944, right, shortly after liberation, the war is still going on in the rest of Europe, he speaks at the first memorial gathering in Ponar Forest where the Vilna Jews were shot and killed. We visit the Ponar Forest, of course, when we go on the tours of, of, of Lithuania. 
and he's the a speaker there as the re- representative rabbi. There's a picture of him actually speaking. Um, and uh, about a year later, he founds out, a year or two later, he founds out from a Jewish communist that the Soviets are after him. They're going to arrest him. He's a rabbi, so he's a threat. Now the Soviets are in charge. So he escapes again to France, uh, later to the United States. He spent about six months in France. While in France, he was recognized by someone, so he was offered an extra food package to regain his strength uh, from the, the whoever was distributing. And he refuses to receive it. He says that that would be depriving someone else from getting one. Uh, Reblazer Silver, Tevarat Salah, and Agudas Yisrael, they find out that Rav Gustman uh, is in in uh, in in Paris in in France. I mean, Rav Gustman is actually never officially affiliated with Agudas Yisrael. In fact, one of one of the things he became renowned for is for getting along with everyone, getting along with all streams in the national religious community in Israel, with everyone. Um, but but the Agudas Yisrael was very involved in in getting him out and saving him and getting him a a visa to the United States, and they did. And uh, shortly after he arrives in the United States, he speaks at, uh, he's the featured speaker at an Aguda gathering uh, shortly after his arrival. And and it's not long after the war had ended. Um, And the topic of his speech, being that he had just gone through the horrors of the Holocaust, he speaks about Esav Soine Yaakov, the non-Jew, the eternal hatred of Esav hating Yaakov and the non-Jewish hostility to the Jewish people. And uh, what he was fascinated by was that some in the audience cast doubt on what he said. They said, oh, not today. The non-Jews are very cultured and they're accepting. And Augustman was absolutely amazed that so shortly after the war, the American Agudas Yisrael Jews could be no, so naive about uh, about that reality. Um, he's appointed by the Rayats, the Friedrich Rebbe, the previous Rebbe of Lubavitch, to be the Rosh Hashiva of the Taimchei Tmimim Yeshiva that was being that was established in Brooklyn, um, um, and he had a very very warm and good close relationship with the Friedrich Rebbe um, when he's appointed as Rosh Hashiva. Is actually one of the, the one who was almost appointed as Rav Moshe Feinstein, and he didn't get you know, he he was he wasn't interested, and Rav Gustman instead gets appointed. And what's interesting, his the relationship with Lubavitch starts way before that, while he was still in Vilna. Pre-war, he was involved. He was a rebbe, or maybe some sort of rebbe or rosh yeshiva of the Taimchei Tamimim Lubavitch Yeshiva in Vilna in the 1930s. While he, again with all his other positions, while he was a rebbe in Ramilas and while he was the, the Vilna Bezdin and the rabbi in Shnipeshuks, he was also a rebbe in the Taimchei Tamimim in Lubavitch in, in Vilna. So he's already close with Lubavitch then. And while he was um, in the rosh yeshiva in in, in Taimchei Tamimim in, in Brooklyn. So supposedly the future Rebbe, uh, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, would listen occasionally to his shiurim. Um, so he was the Rosh Hashiva there for four years. He leaves in 1950 after the previous Rebbe's histalkus. Uh, and, and, uh, and then in 1950, he opens up, he found, you know, he gets even some alumni actually of, uh, of the Ramaylis Yeshiva. And he, re, you know, he names it after the, Ramaylis Yeshiva in Vilna. He calls it Netzach Yisrael, Ramaylis Vilna, um, in, on Eastern Parkway. And he became close that, that time with Ramaylis Feinstein, or Baron Cutler. You know, Augustin was a huge Paisik. He was, uh, you know, from the Vilna Bezden. Ramaylis would sometimes call the public telephone in Netzach Ramaylis, introduce himself to whoever answered, is it, this is Moshe Feinstein. Can I please speak to the Rosh Yeshiva of Gustman? 
Um, so that they enjoyed a, a relationship. Um, he, it was also at this time that Rav Gusman develops a very close relationship with Rabitz Kutner, which lasted, uh, you know, for the rest of, uh, Rav Kutner's life. Very, very close, uh, close, uh, friendship. And Rav Kutner would seek out advice from him very often. In 1971, Rav, uh, Rav Gusman moved to Israel. Um, he sought out the advice of the Chabina Rav, Rav Doiber Schweidenfeld. Um, and the, the Chabina Rav, who lived in Shari Chesed, advised him to settle in the Rechavia neighborhood of Yerushalayim to reestablish his yeshiva, which is where he bought that house, like I mentioned earlier. And my father-in-law was a, a, uh, a close excuse me, student of Rav Gusman's. He told me that the Chabina Rav, and Rav Gusman was a little out of the box, a little different than the mainstream uh, um, yeshivish, as we would say in those days. And uh, the Chabina Rav understood that it's better if he's in a place like Rechavia than in a place like Meish Aram or Shari Chesed. So he said, you know, why don't you settle down in Rechavia? He'll have your own place. This will be yours. And so he followed the Chabina Rav's advice and he bought the place, even though it was more expensive than another building he wanted in, in a different neighborhood, but he felt that uh, the Shabina Rav was giving him wise advice. And, and, and interestingly enough, a couple of years after he arrived, the Yom Kippur War broke out and Rav Gusman volunteered. And, and, and one source says that he volunteered in a hospital, but he volunteered to help out his fellow Jews during the Yom Kippur War. Um, so he gave the shiurim in the yeshiva, and, and my father-in-law, described the shiurim long, hours long uh, shiurim, but on Thursday he gave a shiur that was open to the public, and academics would come to this two-hour Yiddish shiur in a deep Gemara topic, Professor Alman, like I mentioned, Professor Menachem Alone, who was the Supreme Court Justice at that time, and other great, you know, Rechavia was the center of academia, every big academic uh, lived in Rechavia back in those days, every other building was another professor at Hebrew University, you know, everyone everyone lived there. Yeshayahu uh, Leibowitz lived there, and Gershon, uh, Gershom Sholem lived there, and all, they didn't go to to Rav Gusman Shurim, of course. But it was a place full of us. So some of them, some of them went, like I said, uh, you know, some of them went to his shir, and they enjoyed it. They enjoyed a close relationship with him. Um, I I heard one of one of Rav Gusman's closest Talmidim was is. Rav Moshe Lipka, and I had the privilege of speaking to him a bit about uh, Rav Gusman. And uh, I asked him, I said, I've heard that Rav Gusman, during his later years, realized that he's, you know, like the last of a generation. He's the last of the Vilna Dayanim. He's the last of Rav Chaim Eisr's Bezdin. I said, did he feel a certain, I heard that he felt a certain responsibility to convey that, to relay that to the new generation. Did he ever express that to you? That's what I asked him. And Ramesh Lipka tells me that he didn't have to express it. He lived it. He he his whole his whole being exuded that 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 he was the last of a, of a generation. He was the last of the Vilna Dayanim. Um, and when and uh, and when he passed away, the yeshiva went down with him. It remained the kailal, and you know something remained there. But the the yeshiva, my father explained to me that you know some yeshivas were an institution that stands on its own. And here, Rav Gusman was the yeshiva. It was his entire essence. Uh, and once he, once he left, it, it wasn't the same anymore. And it went into a bit of a decline. So that's a little bit about Rav Gusman. This was Yehuda Geber of Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at com for questions 
comments, sponsorships, lectures, virtual tours. Subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.